there's a strategy out there today to confine religious belief to the private. Keep it private. I mean, all religions are equal. They all have truth. So don't bring yours in here. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it into the public market. Because if there is a God, there are really many roads that lead to him. And if you believe there is one way and only one way, just keep it at home. Keep it private. Don't bring it into the public. So what do we do with that type of mentality? Because that indeed is happening today. What do we do with what we have been taught to teach? That's very clearly taught to us in Matthew chapter 28. To go into all the world, to preach and teach, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and follow everything I have commanded you, even to the end of the age. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with the fact that he tells us to go and share the good news? What are we supposed to do with the fact that he calls us the ambassadors, ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the ambassador, the one who is to go out with the name, the power, and the authority of the one who sends them? What are we supposed to do with that? Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. What are we supposed to do when the world tells us just keep it quiet, keep it private, just keep that in your own place? When Jesus says, take it to all the world, all the world, all the nations who are desperately in need of the good news. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, please open it to the Gospel of John, the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. My name is Pastor Milo. We're so glad if you're watching uh, later online or you're watching right now or listening later to our podcast, we are continuing in a sermon series on the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Seven times that he uses these words, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. And today we are looking at this passage from John chapter 14 and particularly verse 6 where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. As always, if we're going to look at a passage like this and what it's truly saying, we need to understand the context in which it is being said. Where does this passage lie within the scripture? Where does it lie within the book even? So in the chapter 13, if you want to look over, it's probably just on the other side of your page, or you will see the header and it lets us know what is going on in that chapter. The header, most of your Bibles will say, when uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He has just shared the Last Supper with his disciples. He has just identified Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot will betray him. In fact, he has already sent him out of the room and he has told him, whatever you are about to do, go and do it quickly. And then he makes a few statements to the 11 that are left, to the 11 that are there sitting in the room. He says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And where I am going to prepare a place, you cannot go, but I'm going to go there. And Peter asks this question, chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And he replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I would lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really? 
Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, he says, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the context in which we get this verse. This is the setting in which we come into chapter 14. And the very first words of chapter 14 that come out of Jesus' mouth, check it out here in verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Isn't this statement absolutely amazing? Absolutely amazing because Jesus knows absolutely everything that is about to happen. He knows the meeting that Judas is in already. He knows that he is going to pay the religious rulers of the day to give up his identity. That he is accepting money to betray Jesus and the rest of the disciples. He knows, he's already said it, that Peter will betray him three times before the next day begins. He knows that the rest of the disciples, the eleven, will disperse and run in every direction, scatter when he is arrested. He knows that there is going to be a fraudulent trial, a trial in which there is going to be, he is going to be the defendant, and he is going to be found guilty, even though there is no evidence to the case whatsoever. And the evidence that they have is completely fraudulent and made up. He is going to be beaten. They are going to spit on him. He knows that they are going to whip him with a cat of nine tails. He already knows that they are going to crucify him. Jesus knows. He already knows that he is going to die on the cross. He is going to be forsaken by his heavenly Father. He is going to cry out there on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the heavenly Father cannot stand the sight of him when he is covered in your sins and mine. <coughs> And his justice must be poured out. What are the words that come out of Jesus' mouth in chapter 14, verse 1? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that humbling? This amazing, overwhelming, this tidal wave of love that Jesus Christ demonstrates for the world. It's humbling because I wish that I was better at this, don't you? I wish that I could demonstrate this type of love for someone else because I don't know about you, but when I'm going through difficult times, when I'm going through troubles, when I'm going through a stressful situation, I'm really not that interested in what is happening to you. I'm solely focused on what is happening to me. I'm convicted in preparing this sermon this week. Convicted that I talked to a number of people this week, a number of you in this room even feeling sorry for myself as I prepared this sermon. How we, as we talked about a few moments ago, we are prepping here as a church staff to have a preaching conference here next week. We're going to have 30 or 40 pastors from the area that are coming in and we're getting ready for that and we are teaching different elements of it and so we have to be prepared for that. But there was a death in our family this week and there was a funeral in our church this week that we had to 
suddenly get ready for. And because this person in our church had passed away, it meant that I had to now meet with the family and set aside time to meet with the family to prepare a funeral message, to, to have a funeral, to, to schedule a graveside ceremony in my schedule for this week. It was really hard, and I wasn't prepared to do that this week. Don't you feel sorry for me? No. Are you serious right now? One of our dear friends, our dearest church members, Larry Law, passed away this week. And Mr. Larry's absolute best friend in the whole world, Miss Maryland, is left alone. And yes, she knows that he's in glory. Yes, she knows that he is in the hands and in the presence of Jesus. And yes, she has her family all around her. And yes, she has her church family all around her. And yes, she has the friends and the companions and the ministry partners that they've built over 75 years together that she spent with her husband and minister. They're all around her. But no, he's not next to her when she goes to sleep at night. And I want to tell you how hard my week was. Lord, teach me, teach us to think of others and think of them more highly, as Philippians tells us, than I think of myself. Like I said, context is important. And here's what John is saying about Jesus. Here at the beginning, if you go back in another chapter 13, the tail end of verse 1, he says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. This love that he has. Jesus knows everything. He knows all of what lies there before him as he is looking forward to what will happen. He knows it all. And his concern is not for himself. His concern is for his 11 disciples. No, to be clear, when we go through difficult things, God does not tell us. Jesus is not telling us, just deal with it. Just shrug it off. It's no big deal. It doesn't bother us. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. Do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he's in tremendous pain, tremendous suffering. He is praying to the Heavenly Father. Sweat drops of blood, Scripture tells us, is dripping off of his forehead. He says, Lord, if it is your will, let this cup be taken from me. But not my will, but yours be done. When we go through troubles, when we are in trials, just like Jesus does, Jesus submits to the will of the Father, and we can do the very same thing. We don't have to like it. We don't have to understand it. But we can continue to submit to the Lord's will. The will of Father. Knowing that above all else, He loves His children to the very end. That's the type of faith that I want. That's the type of faith that I need. That you need to trust God no matter what happens. No matter what might come because right now as we look at this passage as we look at the things that these 11 disciples will experience in the days to come it is about to get really really bad for these disciples these men have burned their boats these men have burned their bridges and walked away from their businesses and their livelihoods. They have destroyed all that lies behind. They cannot go back to where they used to because they are all in. They are all in that this Jesus of Nazareth, when he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they came. 
And they are following him. They are all in when it comes to following Christ. They are all in on calling him the Messiah. They are all in that he is the Savior of the world, but it's not going to turn out the way that they think it's going to. He says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Keep believing in God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. The way that it's written here can be read both as a statement, you believe in God. As a matter of fact, you believe in God. Good for you. Keep believing in God. But in the same way, it's a command. As you believe in God, as you trust in God, trust in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. And he finishes the statement, believe also in me. There's an old hymn that many of you are familiar with. It's the hymn called Trust and Obey. When we look at this word believe, the word's translation is actually a combination of those two words, trust and obey. Not trust or obey, but trust and obey. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. We see it in the surrounding passages around this passage here in chapter 14. Back in chapter 6, this is just after the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples gather around him. Chapter 6, verse 28. The disciples gather, they say, asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe, to trust and obey in the one that he has sent. Then this passage in chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe, so therefore you trust and obey in God. Then you can believe, therefore you trust and obey in me. Down in the same passage, down in the same passage to verse 11, it says, Believe, trust, and obey me. When I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe, trust, and obey me on the evidence of the works themselves. Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus continually, time and time again, claiming his deity. And the people around him are absolutely astonished. Even his enemies, these religious rulers of the day, they see it, they notice it. This man, this man, they said, we know who you are, Jesus. We know that you were born the son of a carpenter. We know where your family lives. We know what their job was. We know how they arrived there, that they made their home in Nazareth. And yet you, this man, claims to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're going to fix the trial. They're going to have a fraudulent trial to make sure that he is silenced. Because they get it. They clearly get it. Peter and the disciples clearly don't get it yet. Time and time again in the Gospel of John, the author tells us, we didn't understand yet the fullness of Scripture. We didn't understand yet what was about to happen. 
They didn't understand yet why Jesus was no longer going to be with them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus goes on further, verse 2. In my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. We were skiing yesterday at Holiday Valley, Holiday Valley Ski Resort. We were there uh, enjoying probably the last time of the season, maybe one more time before the snow melts away or before Buffalo throws an ugly storm at us one more time. I saw something. We've been going there my entire life. I've never seen this before, at least not in the way that it happened there this week. We saw a crowd forming around someone. And, and when, when skiing is happening, you figure, well, maybe someone is injured. Something has happened and people are kind of gathering around. But people are pulling out their phones and their cameras and they were watching. And like, that's weird. You wouldn't do that if you're watching someone who is hurt. At least most of the time you wouldn't do that. So maybe it's a fight that's breaking out. That happened a few weeks ago. And so that was interesting. And people did film that. But that's not what happened here. No, what ended up happening is there were two people uh, at this couple. They're skiing to the bottom of the hill, and the girl falls down. She crashes into another uh, girl, and they fall at the bottom of the hill. And so he goes to help her back up. He helps her to her feet, and then he clicked out of his skis. And for one reason or another, he stayed on both of his knees. And then as the crowd formed, he came up to one knee and pulled out a ring and proposed to her there at the ski resort. Some of you ladies are just looking at me like, oh, it's so sweet. <laughs> so apparently years previously, they met there at the ski resort this weekend, St. Patty's Day weekend. And so this was the fullness of their relationship together to this point. As my daughter hears the story, she says, oh, I love love. For Hazel, everything needs to be a Hallmark movie, and this was pretty close to it. When Jesus talks to his disciples here about preparing a place for them, this is actually an engagement story. They would know, the audience there is there listening, they are talking about a couple being engaged as well. In those days, it wasn't as easy as falling down at the bottom of the ski slope and somebody giving you a ring, and now you're going to get married. That's not what was going on. No, if a young man decided he wanted to ask a girl to marry him, he would go to her father, ask for her hand in marriage. Now we understand that, but they would go further than that. Then he would have to bring his own father. They would come to the table, the two fathers, the, the head of household. They would go over the financials, make sure that this young man is able to care for uh, his daughter. They would go over all of the financial portfolio. They would make sure all those things are in order. And by extension, they'd make sure that the father and that his family would, and the rest of them would also be able to care for the daughter, uh, the bride-to-be, in case something ever happened to the groom. And then if the engagement was agreed upon, the two parties, the groom-to-be would then go back to his father's house and begin to construct something there. He would construct a new home if they were a wealthy enough family where they had enough land and enough space. He would construct a new structure, a new home on the family land. 
If he was a more moderate uh, as far as their financials were concerned, then he would, he would actually put a wing or an addition on the house. He would build a space for the bride-to-be, for them to start their lives. They're an attachment to the house. And then what would happen then, interesting thing apart, it was that the father of the son, the father of the groom, would then become the general contractor and the inspector to make sure that the job was being done appropriately. He would inspect the work, make sure that it was to the standard that had been agreed upon between his family and her family. The father is the one who decides whether the house has been prepared up to standard. The father is the one who decides when the house is right. It's the father who decides when the rooms are correct. It's the father who decides, and only when he decides that they can move forward, that the place being prepared has met the specifications that he has set, that the wedding day can go forward. So now, while the groom is building the rooms or building the house, the bride too, she is preparing herself. She is preparing herself for the wedding day. Because as time goes forward, she knows that one day the house will be complete. That one day this, this instrument that was made out of a ram's horn, the shofar, will blow. And it will mean that today is the day, the wedding day is now. When the father says, it's time, then the groom will come for his bride. This is what's happening here. And Jesus is telling them that this is where he is going. He is going to heaven, the place where the father is. They will be separated for a time. And while he is gone, he is preparing a place for them. And while they are apart, Jesus will be working on a place for them. And there, of course, will be when he comes back and returns for them one day. And Jesus adds this sentence, and you know the way to where I am going. You already know the road that leads to heaven. Jesus deliberately plants this to grab their curiosity, to grab their attention. Jesus already knows something. And, and, and in our minds, we're thinking, wait a minute, did he, did he say something in his previous teachings? Did, is there something going on in the rest of the book of John? And thankfully, someone speaks up. Thomas speaks up, and Thomas gets a bad rap at times. But he speaks up and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember this. It's not in my notes. Lord, we do not know where we're going. How can we know the way? And we see one of the most riveting statements that Jesus has ever made. It sets him apart from everyone else. This phrase, this line alone changed everything for those disciples. And it changes everything for anyone who would call themselves a follower of Christ. Verse 6, Jesus answered, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Categorically, Jesus draws a line in the sand that this way is right and every other way is wrong. This is the way, one way or nothing. It's either or, think about that for a moment, it's not one option or no, it is this option. Jesus knows that the cross is awaiting for him in the next few hours. He knows what it means. He knows and understands where he is going. He knows what's going to happen. In that context, he says, I am the way. The way to heaven is not a religious system. The way to heaven is not a rule, spiritual teachings that we follow. The way to heaven is not about our sincere desires or our sincere efforts. The way is me, Jesus says. 
You know the way to where I'm going because you know me. The minute you reduce the path down to to a, a list of rights and wrongs, of do's and don'ts, or try to come up with an alternative approach to getting right with God the Father that's outside of Jesus Christ, you've put yourself on a path that leads to destruction. It says, I am the way. Secondly, he says, I am the truth. When he says, I'm the truth, he means trust in me. You can count on what I'm saying to you. I'm about to pay for your forgiveness with my blood. I cannot love you any more than I do. I'm going to the cross to prove it to you, and, and that's all that I need to build this bridge across the cavern between sin and death and life and eternity. I'm all that you ever need. This is the truth. And there'll be a lot of people out there, he says, that will try to tell you that they know the truth. Hear me clearly, unless you are speaking, I am the truth. I am the whole truth, and I am nothing but the truth. You can trust me. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. When he says, I am the life, he means there's a kind of life that is only a shadow of what God has created it to be. That's the kind of life you're living right now. Life without me is like an echo. It's here for a moment and it's gone. Illustration was given to me this week about a baby in the baby canal, birth canal before they're born. There's a, there's a semblance of life, but not realizing what's on the other side of the birth canal, outside of the womb. That life is so much more than what they've experienced to that point, would you agree? To that point, everything has been pretty small and confined. No, Jesus says, I am life. And the life that I give is abundant and eternal. It outlasts the few years that we have here on this earth, this smallness that we know to this point. It easily outshines what this world has to offer. And I'm here, he says, to give you this kind of life. I am your life. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on even further. He ups the ante even more and he adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. Basically this means that at the beginning of each of these statements we can add the word only to the preceding phrase. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. You may be here this morning. You may be listening online. You may have been a part of the church for a long time and this assertion bothers you. That Jesus says he is the only way. That Jesus says he is the only truth. That Jesus says he is the only life. And you struggle with it because those who pursue Christianity, you find perhaps that this is a bit too arrogant. It's a bit too narrow-minded. It's a bit too insistent that Christians have the only way. That Christ followers would have the only truth that followers of Jesus would have the only life. It seems like God would be big enough, doesn't it, that he would allow for multiple ways to heaven. Well, maybe I can suggest a greater conclusion, that this is actually one of the most wonderful realities that all of Scripture has to offer us. This is one of the most wonderful realities. This is, this is the good news to the world. It's wonderful, first of all, because it's clear. If you're trying to go somewhere, what you need is 
clarity. Nobody is satisfied with vague directions to get somewhere. This is an example I was given years ago, and I love to be able to talk about it. If, if we decide there's a group of us, and there's some of you in this church that already know the way, that you're going to go to Disney World. And you're super excited about going to Disney World, and so you make your reservations. You show up just across the street over here. You make your way over to the airport, and you see a flight that's listed. It says, we're going to go to Orlando, Florida. Flight 2020, Orlando, Florida. And it says, gates 21 through 29. That doesn't make any sense. But you make your way down that corridor. You look for gates 21 to 29, figuring that someone is going to point you to the proper gate. When you get there and you're in that area, you find that none of the gates have on them indicating where the flight would go. There's lots of planes out there. They're all waiting for people to get on, but you don't know where any one of them is going. So you start asking around. You say, well, which one of these flights is headed to Orlando? I'm trying to take my family to Disney World. Someone speaks up, oh, we were just discussing that. My friend John over here, he likes the looks of that plane out there, that 747. That's his favorite plane. So he decided he's going to get on that plane and see where it's going to go. I'm going to get on gate 26 because that was my jersey number in high school. 22 has always been my lucky number, so I'm taking 22. But how do you know that you're going to Orlando? Well, who knows anything for sure? I've got just as good a chance as anybody else here on getting on the right plane. Finally, you can't take it anymore, so you decide to go over to the desk, talk to someone there at the desk, find out which one of these flights is flight 2020 headed to Orlando. And the staff tells you, oh, it's not our policy to tell you which gate you have to fly out of. That would be very narrow-minded of us, wouldn't it? to try to tell you which one that you have to get on. All these hardworking crews and all of the different uh, people working to get our sincere passengers on the way. Why would you want us to tell you one over another? Take whichever one you want. They're all going somewhere. How ridiculous. How irresponsible would that be? And it's just as ridiculous to suggest that all roads lead to heaven. If you want to get to heaven, you better be sure you're on the right track. You better be sure you're on the right path. This is why this truth of I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life is so wonderful. It's wonderful because it's clear. Secondly, it's wonderful because it works. What Jesus promises, he delivers. He can get you to where you want to go. He can take you to heaven, heaven forever with God. The kingdom of heaven is now, Jesus tells us. He can give you what you need. He can give you freedom from sin and have real purpose in life. And we can say this with boldness because he's demonstrated it for us. He demonstrated perfectly what he said. He spoke these profound words to the world. He lived this most remarkable, influential life in human history. And then he goes to the cross. He commands the forces of nature. He raises people from the dead. He voluntarily dies instead of sinners. He dies there for you and for me. And then he resurrects again from the dead, just like he said that he would. Jesus stands alone in his claims and in his acts. There is no one else like Jesus. And untold millions of people over generations have followed Jesus and testified that he has, in fact, transformed their lives just like he said that he would. 
He has forgiven them of their sins. He has delivered them from their bondage. And he has changed their futures. It's wonderful because it's clear. It's wonderful because it actually works. And it's wonderful because it's available to anyone. Anyone can believe this. Jesus says here that no one comes to the Father except through me. But the inverse is also true. That means that everyone who comes to him has access to the Father. Everyone who believes or everyone who trusts and obeys Jesus Christ will be together with him. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The Apostle Paul, you remember him. He was the Christian murderer in the book of Romans after coming to Christ, after being in relationship with Christ, he puts it this way. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember the context here once again. The Gospel of John. The Apostle John is writing this Gospel and distributing it to his early church, the early followers of Christ. Perhaps somewhere around 50 years after Jesus has gone to the cross, he has died victorious over sin, victorious over death, raised again and ascended into heaven. Some 50 years after that is when this is actually penned and written down. After he has given them the great commission to go into all the world and share the good news to anyone who will listen. As John is writing this gospel, the followers of Christ are under the Roman rule and under Roman control. As John is writing this gospel, the Roman centurions would deliver the bust, that's the head, the shape of the head to, of Caesar. They would deliver it to all the different towns and cities and communities. Says, this is your God. You worship Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. Hail Caesar. This is why John is writing this message. This is why John is, is sending this gospel message out to clarify and to ratify the gospel message. Jesus says, I am the only way. Jesus says, I am the only truth. Jesus says, I am the only life. And by doing so, he's calling the church not to go into isolation, but calling the church to a revolution that they were going to stand up for their faith in the face of Rome. <coughs> Jerusalem falls, the city of Jerusalem falls to the hands of Rome in AD 70. Jerusalem that you read about all through Scripture does not look that way anymore after AD 70. But it's similar to something that happened generations previously, that Jerusalem had fallen to the hands of the Babylonians. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we read what the prophet had to say to the people as, as the city is collapsing, what, what Jeremiah has to say to those who are going to be taken over by the Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 4 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what those gardens produce. Verse 7, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then this verse, 2911. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What is going on here? 
The city is falling. The people are in total chaos because everything that they know has been destroyed. And yet God is telling them to dwell. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I want you to build gardens. I want you to build homes. I want you to live there with these people, even though they're the ones who are destroying Israel. I know the plans I have for you, he says. As the band comes this morning, I would argue that John, as he is writing the gospel of John, is very much saying the same thing. He is reading the words of Jesus to the people saying, when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Remember the context then. As he is not saying, remove yourself from society, that you have the only way and you have it for yourself and that nobody else. No, he's saying, be a part. Be a part of society. Be a part of the community. Be part of the Babylonian world that you experience called Rome. Be a part of that so that they can see the way, so they can see the truth, so they can see the life and have it tangible and available to them. Friends, we look at this passage too often as a passage of salvation. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you need to see that this passage is a passage of mission. That This is what we have been called to do is to share the truth, share the way, share the life. This is what we have been called to. So this morning, as we come to a close, as we come to a transitional time where we look at God's Word and look at how it may call us to action, there are some here this morning that you would have to realize and argue that that you have not ever personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, that's someone else's story somewhere else. So first asking you, do you know him? When you read these words, are they true to you? Do they connect with you because you know that you are following the way? You know that you are following the truth. You know that you have abundant life because what Christ has done in your life. If not, I pray that this morning would be the morning that you would make that choice. Whether by writing something down on a connection card and dropping it off there in the back. Say, today is the day. Today is the day that I'm going to make a decision to move on this. To follow the way. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. When I come again, I want to receive you unto myself. Secondly, however, when you see this passage about the way, the truth, and the life, are you living a life, Christian? Are you living a life follower of Christ that demonstrates the way, the truth, and the life for all who would see? This morning I will be here I'd love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to respond to this message that God has for us. What we do here on Sundays is we stand and we sing together a few stanzas of the song, allow our hearts to respond, to sing and worship what God is already going to do in this room. I'd love to be able to pray with you over any number of things. So if you'll stand right now and, and sing with us, Let's sing for the glory of God.